Welcome to Friendship with God with our Bible teacher, Tom Cantor. Today's message and previous messages can be listened to or downloaded for free at friendshipwithgod.org, friendshipwithgod.org. You can also obtain free resources from Tom Cantor and view our online bookstore at friendshipwithgod.org or call us at 800-247-3051, 800-247-3051. Tom Cantor also has a daily devotional verse that comes out each day by email and on Facebook. To receive this small daily devotional verse that Tom Cantor puts out, you can sign up at friendshipwithgod.org friendshipwithgod.org or find Tom Cantor on Facebook by searching for Tom Cantor and Friendship with God. Now here is our Bible teacher, Tom Cantor. Let's pray. Father, we thank you so much that for the warmth of your presence. It's cold outside and when we come in, Lord, to this place, we want it to be like we're coming into the house of God and that, Lord, you're sitting down with us and you're teaching us your Bible. Do that to us. Warm our hearts, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Chapter 24, verse 33. And there was set meat before him to eat, but he said, I will not eat until I have told mine errand. And he said, speak on. And he said, I am Abraham's servant, and the Lord hath blessed my master greatly, and he has become great, and he hath given him flocks and herds and silver and gold and men servants and maid servants and camels and asses. And Sarah, my master's wife, bare a son to my master when she was old, and unto him hath he given all that he hath. And my master made me swear, saying, Thou shalt not take a wife to my son of the daughters of the Canaanites in whose land I dwell, but thou shalt go unto my father's house and to my kindred and take a wife unto my son. And I said unto my master, Peradventure the woman will not follow me. And he said unto me, The Lord before whom I walk, will send his angel with thee and prosper thy way, and thou shalt take a wife for my son of my kindred to my father's house. Then shalt thou be clear from this my oath when thou comest to my kindred, and if they give thee not one, then thou shalt be clear from my oath. So here we have in verse 34, Eliezer now, he's starting a speech, and we're with him here as he starts his speech, and he introduces himself, and he, he doesn't give his name. He just says, I am Abraham's servant. And we saw that when Eliezer didn't give his name, but simply said, I'm Abraham's servant, we saw in him a spirit of John 3.30 that we are to emulate, where it says, I must decrease and he must increase. And when Eliezer said, I am Abraham's servant, we saw in Eliezer a spirit of Galatians 6.14 where we are told, but God forbid that I should glory or that I should brag or that I should boast, save in the cross of our Lord Jesus Christ. And when Eliezer said, I am Abraham's servant, we saw in Eliezer a spirit of Colossians 2, 9 through 10, where we read, for in him dwelleth all the fullness of the Godhead bodily, and you're complete in him, which is the head of all principality and power. So verse 34, Eliezer has already started right off the bat with the subject of what he has to say. I mean, he's launching right into his speech in here, and in verse 35, he proceeds now to say, first he says, I'm the Lord's servant, then he says, and the Lord hath blessed my master greatly, and he's become great, and he's given him flocks and herds, and, and he goes through a list, silver and gold and so forth. So what we see here is how Eliezer now is going to drive a point. 
And the point that he's going to drive right away is to tell us that Abraham has become great with flocks and herds and so forth. But there's a way that's commonly used today that he could have said something along these lines. Now, you know that that master of mine, Abraham, boy, you've never seen a man that's more able in business affairs like Abraham. He has got just a superb wisdom and knowledge. And Abraham has, and here's the phrase, he has grown the business. You know, (laughs) that's a common phrase today. He's grown the business. You know, grow the business. People say to me, well, you've really grown the business. And I'm so quick to say, no, I haven't. I haven't grown this business any more than I've grown a plant, you know. And so when everyone says to me that I've grown the business or I'm going to grow the business, I see it like a crossroads. And the crossroads is that on one hand, there's this road that goes down this direction and it's got the street sign that says, by my own hand. And so you say, okay, and we come to these crossroads also where we look at whatever we have or whatever we've accomplished and we have the temptation to go down the road that's marked by my own hand. And that's the whole reason when you look at what God did with Gideon's army, where he started off with so many, and he says, and God says, no, it's too many. And he reduces them down, and everybody's wide-eyed, and he says again, no, it's too many. And he goes, and he's got down to 300, and you say, why in the world did God do that? Why did he do that? And he gives the reason in Judges 7-2, where it says, and the Lord said unto Gideon, the people that are with thee, are too many for me, they're too many for me, he said, to give the Midianites into their hands, lest Israel vaunt themselves against me, saying, mine own hand hath saved me. God did not want Israel to look at how the Midianites were conquered and go down that road as marked by my own hand. And that's the reason when you look and you say to yourself, you know, it's just so strange. I just don't really don't get it. I mean, God did such a wonderful deliverance of the Jewish people of Israel out of Egypt. So marvelous, so complete. Ten plagues and, you know, and all the wealth of Egypt that's spoiled that they took it with them. You know, it's so great of how he delivered them there in Egypt. Such a great deliverance, such a great provision to do what? To lead them for 40 years into a desert filled with poisonous snakes and scorpions and no water and no food. Why did he do that? Well, he did it so that he could protect them from the poisonous snakes and the scorpions, so that he could give them water out of a rock, so that he could feed them with manna from the sky. And so he leads them into this terrible desert and provides for them in this terrible desert for one reason. And Moses told them the reason in Deuteronomy 8, 15 through 18, when he explains to them why God did that. And he says, "Who speaking of God, he led thee through that great and terrible wilderness. It really is the word desert. So he, great and terrible desert, he says, wherein were fiery serpents and scorpions and drought where there is no water, who brought thee forth water out of the rock of flint. I don't know if any water, if rocks have any more moisture than others, but I'm sure flint has the least of them anyway. Who fed thee in the desert, says wilderness, but it's the word desert, who fed thee in the desert with manna, which thy fathers knew not, that he might humble thee and that he might prove thee 
to do the good at thy latter end. And he says, what he doesn't want them to say in their heart, in verse 17, is my might and my own hand hath gotten me this wealth. But thou shalt remember the Lord thy God, for it is he that giveth thee power to get wealth, that he may establish his covenant, which he swear unto thy fathers as it is this day. So, having so greatly delivered Israel out of Egypt, God leads them into this terrible place, this terrible desert. I mean, it's, if you've ever been there, Sinai, it's kind of like the El Centro without uh, water. <laughs> you know, it's bad there. Isn't that right, Irene? It's just a terrible. Anyway, a terrible place for one simple reason, because God wanted to embed in their memories Everything they have and everything they accomplished had come from God. So that when Israel arrives in Canaan and gains this wealth, they would remember, it's God who gave me that wealth. I remember how he provided for me. You know, the Orthodox people, they just celebrated the holiday of Sukkot, in which they built booths in their backyards and at meals. As a kid, we never built booths in our house, but we built booths in the back of Temple Emmanuel in the desert of Beverly Hills. (laughs) Unfortunately... The holiday of Sukkot has been reduced down to just a time of gathering of family and friends to eat in a booth in a backyard. And for most Jewish people, especially Orthodox people, that's sadly the only purpose that's accomplished in Sukkot celebration. But if any person is going to really accomplish the purpose of Sukkot, that celebration, then he must go into that booth and he must carry his mind back to the desert of Sinai. He must be in mind and his heart and spirit with the people, with Israel, in the feeling that great need once again. Because being in Sinai there with those poisonous snakes and the poisonous scorpions that are ready to poison them to death, he must in that sukkah both carry his mind back to that. So being once again, he got to see himself once again. I'm in the Sinai desert and I feel the sun and there's no shade and I feel thirst and it's dying the last amount of moisture, life moisture out of me and I'm despair. I'm in despair of no water in the desert. And so that's what's got to happen in the Sukkot booth there. He's got to carry his mind back to once again being in the Sinai desert. No food. I feel the hunger that's threatened me to death. And then, only then, is he's carried back in mind to feel this threat of death from the poisonous snakes and the serpents and the thirst and the hunger. Then, only then, is he really ready to accomplish the purpose of the celebration when he looks at the booth over his head and he lifts up his prayer to God and he says, I, along with Israel, would have died had not God given us the shade by day to protect from the steadily sun. I thank you for the shade protection of this booth. And then he lifts up his heart to God in prayer and he says, I, along with Israel, we would have died had not God given us protection from the poisonous snakes and the scorpions and the Sinai. And I thank you for the protection that you gave in saving of us our lives. And this is the purpose when he lifts up his heart to God and he says, I, along with Israel, would have died of the thirst had God not brought water out of a rock in the Sinai Desert. Thank you for the water that saved my life, saved our lives from the thirst. I, along with Israel, would have died of hunger had not God given us manna, bread from heaven, raining down on us here, what God calls angels' food. I thank you for the bread that saved our lives from hunger. And if any person does not feel that deadly need from the snakes, the poisonous snakes, the scorpions, the sun, the thirst, the hunger, if he doesn't appreciate that, doesn't appreciate the need, 
then he'll never appreciate God's provision of the shade and the food and the protection and the water. And if he doesn't feel that, he'll never look to God and he'll never say, because it's only when he feels the deadly need that he's in a position to accomplish the ultimate purpose of the Sukkot celebration, which is then and after that, he gets in the frame of mind of feeling all this deadly need, thankful prayer that he's able to lift up his heart and say, now I'm not only in the deadly Sinai desert, I'm in the deadly desert of my sins. And the worse than the deadly snakes and the scorpions and the sun and the hunger and the thirst is this uncleanness that's destroying me from my sins. And if I die in my sins, I would die in my sins. I would go to hell had not given us his only begotten son, the Lord Jesus Christ, on the cross, which he died for my sins, to atone for me. So I receive him now because I've got the need in my heart. Receive him and I thank you for the life, the burial, the death, the resurrection of the Lord Jesus that saved my life. See, then the ultimate, the ultimate goal for the Sukkot celebration is accomplished. And so when a person goes from the Sinai to the desert of their own sin, then the person can say 2 Corinthians 9, 15, thanks be unto God for his unspeakable gift. And so thank you for giving the Lord Jesus for my sins. Never do that unless he feels the deadly need of the sins. You might say, well, okay, that's a Jewish holiday. And so thankfully I'm not Jewish, so I don't have to celebrate those things like the Sukkot. But we're all going to celebrate Thanksgiving. And there's an exact parallel as we look at the sukkah because as soon as we'll celebrate Thanksgiving, we'll gather around our tables in the deserts of San Diego and Mount Helix and other places. <laughs> and unfortunately, the holiday of Thanksgiving has been reduced down to just a gathering of family and friends to overeat. And for most of us, that's sadly the only purpose that's accomplished during Thanksgiving celebration. But if any person is going to accomplish the purpose of the Thanksgiving celebration, he must at that table carry his mind back to that seacoast there around Plymouth and be with those pilgrims as they landed and feel the great need once again. He's got to be there and feel the cold, deadly snows. And at that Thanksgiving table, carry his mind back to again to the place where there's no food and we feel the despair of having to make friends with these hostile Indians. And that's what's got to happen at the Thanksgiving table. He's got to feel the no food. He's got to feel the hunger that's threatening to death. Then only then, as he feels that with the no shelter, the hunger and the Indians and the death, then he's ready to accomplish the purpose of Thanksgiving when he looks on the table and lifts his heart to God and says, I, along with those pilgrims, would have died had not God given us the shelter and the friendship with the Indians and the food. Thank you for the shelter and the friendship and the food. And then he's got himself in his mind there in the fright frame. And then he's prepared to lift his heart and to say, now I'm not on the deadly shore there of, um, of Plymouth, but I'm in the desert of my sins. I'm in the, the, the worse, worse than exposure to winter, worse than the hostility of the Indians, worse than a lack of food. I'm going to be destroyed now by the uncleanness of my sins. I'm going to die in my sins had not God given his only begotten son, the Lord Jesus Christ, to die for me. And if he hasn't, I receive him now. Receive him now. And if he has, then I thank you for him who lived and died and was buried and resurrected to save my life. That's the ultimate goal. Again, same thing, coming to the place of 2 Corinthians 9, 15, when he says, thanks be unto God for his unspeakable gift. No one's going to do that unless they feel again the deadly need from their sins. It takes a mind that's channeled 
to see God as the giver and the provider and not allow the mind to take the natural course of, I grew my wealth, I grew my accomplishments. That's why those first three words in verse 35 are so critical of what Eliezer said when he starts right off the bat and he says, the Lord hath blessed my master greatly. So after introducing himself here with these words, these first words, he just wanted there to be no doubt as to what happened to Abraham. There's no way that Eliezer is going to leave his hearers now for one second that Abraham, by his own cleverness and his strength, had gained all that he had. That's the reason that's so critical for us. It's also the reason why God judged the Assyrians because the Assyrians, God used them to punish Israel, and then they gathered spoil, but then they took it a little bit too far. It says in Isaiah 10, 13 through 15, for he saith, by the strength of my hand, I've done it. And by my wisdom, I'm prudent. I've removed the bounds of the people, robbed their treasures, put down the inhabitants like a valiant man. And my hand hath found as a nest the riches of the people, and as one gathereth eggs that are left, have I gathered all the earth, and there was none that moved the wing or opened the mouth or peeped. So then God asked the question. God, in essence, was saying to the Syrians, I used you to punish them. So he asked the question, shall the axe boast itself against him that heweth therewith? Or shall the saw magnify itself against him that shaketh it, as if the rod should shake itself against him that lifted up, or as if the staff should lift up itself as if it were no wood? Can you imagine that? If you, had a, <laughs> if you had a saw and you're sawing like that, and all of a sudden the saw starts shaking and starts telling you what to do, you know, that's what God's saying. To look on what we have and what we've accomplished and to say, really, it's the words of Satan. It's the words that Satan said. When God says, Satan, you looked at your brightness. Instead of attributing it as a gift from God, your wisdom, God says, was corrupted. Your wisdom became deformed by saying that it was your own beauty and God had nothing to do with it. That's what's being said in Ezekiel 28, 15 through 17, when God says to Satan, thou was perfect in thy ways from the day that thou was created, till iniquity was found in thee. By the multitude of thy merchandise, they filled the midst of thee with violence. Thou hast sinned, therefore I will cast thee as a profane out of the mountain of God and destroy thee, O covering cherub, from the midst of the stones of fire. Thine heart was lifted up Because of thy beauty, thou hast corrupted thy wisdom by reason of the brightness. I'll cast thee to the ground, I'll lay thee before kings, that they may behold thee. So whenever we start to think that, boy, we really have done it, you know, we have accomplished it, God had nothing to do with it, God says that's a corruption of your wisdom. It's a corruption of your understanding. And Eliezer would have nothing to do with any inference that Abraham gained everything, and it was because of Abraham. So he starts off, the Lord hath blessed my master greatly, and he's become great. Now, in verse 36, we see here that Eliezer tells them that Abraham had a son. And it's kind of interesting how Eliezer puts it in verse 36. How did Eliezer explain that Abraham had a son? Did Eliezer just say, my master Abraham had a son? What did he say? And Sarah, my master's wife, bare a son to my master when she was old. And unto him have he given all that he hath. See, explaining to them that Abraham had a son, he says it this way. He said, Sarah, my master's wife, bare a son to my master when she was old. See, what we see here in verse 36 is Eliezer speaking about Sarah. And first of all, he calls Sarah my master's wife. 
and so it's almost like you can hear Eliezer saying, now look, you may have heard <laughs> by the grapevine that Abraham had a son called Ishmael with another woman named Hagar. I'm not talking about that son because that son was with Hagar and I'm not calling Hagar my master's wife. I'm talking about the son with Sarah and she's my master's wife. See, it's as if Eliezer is saying that Sarah has always been my master's wife. Hagar was never my master's wife, even though they had a son together, but that's a different issue. And I don't want to go into that. (laughs) So then Eliezer explains to them that she bore the son to Abraham when she was old. And so it's as if he was saying, you know, the Jews seek a sign. That's a sign. That's a miraculous sign. You know, she was old that she should have this son that was given to her as a gift from God. It reminds me of Pastor Chesko. He and his wife were trying to have a baby for 14 years and they couldn't. And so they gave up. And then one day, Tom told me that his wife just started going out and buying baby girl clothes. <laughs> and he asked her, what are you doing? <laughs> you know? And she said, well, God told me we're going to have a baby girl. He says, God told you you're going to have a baby? He says, yeah, God told me. He says, and he says, well, you realize that when you say that, you're blowing my theology <laughs> about not having extra biblical revelation. <laughs> and sure enough, she went to the doctor and she was pregnant. And sure enough, when it was born, there was a girl. And so they look at their daughter like there's a miracle from God. And that's what Eliezer is saying in verse 36, that the son is a miracle because Sarah was old when he had him. Okay, what does Eliezer explain about the son in the last part of verse 36? He gets it all, doesn't it? Unto him hath he given all that he hath. Unto him hath he given all that he hath. See, this is clearly the most important point about Isaac. You know, when you want to make a really important point, don't dilute it with a lot of other stuff. Just say the point and let it stay there like that. That's what's being done here. That's what's so interesting about what he says here. He doesn't say anything else about Isaac. I mean, you would think, you might think to yourself, you know, uh, she's going to go marry him. She goes, can you tell us a little bit about him? I mean, what kind of personality does he have? Eliezer does not say anything about his personality. You know, they might say, you know, well, you know, we're just a little curious. Is he tall? Is he short? What's the color of his hair? Is he fat? Is he skinny? Is he handsome? He tells them nothing about his physical appearance. All that Eliezer says about Isaac is this one short description in verse 36. Unto him hath he given all that he hath. And it's remarkable here. You know another thing that's remarkable about this? Is that there's the same conspicuous by its absence that we saw in how Eliezer's name is missing out of this longest chapter in Genesis. He doesn't even tell him his name is Isaac. He doesn't even tell them. They might say, well, what's his name? He doesn't tell them that. And you'd think they might like to know right away what the name of their son-in-law is going to be, you know. (laughs) He's going to be the husband of Rebecca, and he doesn't give his name. And in this narrative, Eliezer is telling the family about Isaac, and God has chosen to not include Isaac's name in this narrative of Eliezer telling the family about him. It's so conspicuous by its absence. It's so meaningful. It's as if Eliezer is focusing the family. I want you to see one statement. I want you to focus on this. Unto him hath he given all that he hath. That's what you need to see. That's what needs to be in your mind. Don't get distracted by how he looks and what his personality like, not even what his name is. It's got a funny name, laughter, I mean, you know, but anyway. But don't get distracted by that. Focus in, hone in on 
put before you this statement. This is it. Unto him hath he given all that he hath. As is it, he's saying, his stature's not important. What's important is unto him hath he given all that he hath. His hair color, his weight, his, whether or not he's that handsome, that's not important. Another wonderful day studying the Bible with our Bible teacher, Tom Cantor, here on Friendship with God. Don't forget that today's message and previous messages can be listened and downloaded for free at friendshipwithgod.org, friendshipwithgod.org. You can also go online to find free resources from Tom Cantor and our online bookstore at friendshipwithgod.org. You can also find Tom Cantor on Facebook, and you can also go to friendshipwithgod.org to sign up for his daily devotional verse. Now, Tom Cantor is also the founder of Israel Restoration Ministries. You can visit that website at israelrestoration.org. Or you can write Tom Cantor at P.O. Box 711-330, P.O. Box 711-330, Santee, California. That's S-A-N-T-E-E, Santee, California, 92071. Or you can email Tom Cantor at friendshipwithgod.org. Org. Tom Cantor at friendshipwithgod.org. Or for more information about Tom Cantor and Friendship with God and Israel Restoration Ministries, call us at 800 247 3051. Christmas is here. Join Tom Cantor at the annual Christmas Under the Stars Free Family Festival Christian event on Saturday, December 10th from 3 p.m. to 8 p.m. at the Creation Earth History Museum in Santee, California. Games, rides, petting zoos, family photos, live Christmas music, and a live nativity, holiday food and drinks, a star viewing, and a Christmas light show, and so much more. This year, bring a toy to support Operation Save Christmas, a benefit to help support the hundreds of homeless children in San Diego out on the streets. So join Tom Cantor for this free family festival Christian event, Christmas Under the Stars, on Saturday, December 10th from 3 p.m. to 8 p.m. at the Creation and Earth History Museum in Santee. And bring the family and friends for rides, games, animals, music, a live nativity, and so much more. And don't forget to bring that gift for a homeless child. To learn more about Christmas Under the Stars and Operation Save Christmas, call 619-599-1104. 619-599-1104. Or go online to creationsd.org. creationsd.org.